Okay, good morning. And I want to begin with prayer, and then I'm going to read a couple passages about Christian fellowship and unity, and we'll go from there. Dear Lord, thank you for gathering us together under the gospel. Thank you that you've given us many great and magnificent promises that we can believe and trust. And we know, Lord, that you cannot lie. We do want to have faith in your promises. We pray that today we would grow in grace and knowledge of you and in fellowship of one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, here we are, and I'm going to read a couple verses. They're not on a slide. You could turn to them if you want. Philippians 1.27, and then Philippians 2, 1 and 2. In those passages, they really show you what Christian unity is about. Because we've been known for correcting error, some people think that we don't believe in Christian unity. And that's just flat out not the truth. I very much believe in Christian unity, and I think unity is important. In fact, that's why we're gospel-centric, because there's the one way we'll arrive at unity. It's through the gospel. So let me read Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So there's Christian fellowship, there's Christian unity. So a gospel church should be a church that's known for unity. Because the gospel unifies us, and we have one thing that we're striving together for, which is the faith of the gospel. Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So there is a very strong call to Christian unity. And as we are committed to the gospel and the revealed promises of God therein, we are also committed to Christian unity. And it's a spiritual unity, and and our fellowship is grounded in that gospel unity. When Eric and I do radio, one of the outs that that he reads is Philippians 127, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's our intent. That's our purpose. When the gospel is preached, we make a groundwork for that. Now, as we transition from... The word of God, in Act, excuse me, yeah, in Acts 2.42, to fellowship as means of grace. I have one more issue that I want to deal with, and that is special religious oaths. And we've been talking about 
the difference between pietism and true piety. Now, there's nothing more appealing, it seems, to American Christians than taking oaths. This goes back a couple hundred years at least, and is grounded in 19th century, 20th century, and it goes back before that in Roman Catholicism with your monastic vows, which are so popular in Rome. Luther has an S.A. against religious oaths and vows because he at one point had taken them. And so, therefore, having taken an oath of chastity and obedience and poverty, I think those are the three, right? Poverty, obedience, and chastity. Later, when Luther married, he made himself an oath breaker. He was a covenant breaker. And so how do you deal with that? Having taken an oath of chastity, which in Rome meant you never will be married, and then marrying, now you're an oath breaker. So Luther realized the damage that that does to the flock and went back to what Christ and James said and wrote a whole essay rebuking religious oaths. And his claim was, that oaths themselves were sin, and that by breaking his oath, he was repenting of his sin. Okay? (laughs) That it was a sin and and folly to ever take an oath to start with. And he renounced it, and he married, and went about ordinary life. One thing I can't answer for you, this is a question that's been in my mind since I did a lot of extensive study of church history when I was in seminary, I kind of specialized in that. And one of my favorite teachers was Dr. William Travis, and I took his electives on the topic of American revivalism and popular religion in America and so on. I read a lot of material about it. Here's what I can't answer. Maybe one of you can Sense is so clear. Now, if you look up here, let me read the passages, James 5.12, Matthew 5.34. But above all, James says, now this is important. He says, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And then in Matthew 5.34, Jesus said, but I say to you, Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. And I'll read more of that here in a bit. Here's the question I can't answer. How is it that the clear teaching of Christ and James has been uniformly ignored throughout church history, and nobody seems to have a problem with that? In other words, if we're in abject rebellion against Jesus... Wouldn't that at least give us a little prick of conscience? I'm rebelling against Jesus. This is really evil. And when these oaths were instituted, first in Rome, the monastic vows, the vows of poverty and what have you, and I mentioned these works of supererogation, which means above and beyond normal duty that they invented, You should hear Luther talk about that. 
Well, didn't Jesus forbid this? Nobody even asks. And when these vows come into evangelicalism, as they have in the 19th and 20th century, even into the 21st century, nobody even pauses to ask, I wonder why Jesus forbade this. You got the mic. Brian. On a simpler note, uh, a decade ago when uh, Promise Keepers was real popular, uh, the reason that fizzled out was because after X amount of time for each individual, they figured, well, they couldn't keep the promise anyway, and then see you later. Well, I want to explore this. I wrote a chapter on it in in this book, uh, Redefining Christianity. I wrote a whole chapter on called Redefining Christian Commitment that deals with this, and I quote Luther quite heavily because he helps us. The answer in America is that this goes way back into the early days of American revivalism. And one of the classes I took from Dr. Travis was the history of American revivalism, and one of our textbooks was this book by Keith Hardman, Seasons of Refreshing. It's really quite a good book. And the guy is even-handed, and he just talks about great awakenings and mass evangelism and revival meetings and various streams of that. But it's very, it was an interesting book. The lectures, I, I reread a while back my lecture notes from Dr. Travis. And then I took another course from him entitled Popular Religion in America. And getting a mass of people together to raise their hand, walk the aisle, take a pledge, swear an oath, goes way back. And the idea behind it was that we're going to reform America to become a more Christian nation, and we're going to do it with these oaths and pledges and mass meetings. And this was really a heavily promoted in the 19th century. When we hear of D.L. Moody or Billy Graham or Promise Keepers or now Rick Warren, we should realize that this is just how Americans do religion. And you cannot find anybody that gives pause and, and says, well, didn't Jesus forbid this? I would say, and this is a question I can't answer myself, but the question would be, At the time when Jesus forbade this, since that time, things have only gotten worse. It wasn't quite clear at the time who were taking the oaths other than Pharisees and religious Jews, but it it invaded the church, religious oaths. Yes, Dan. Um, I just had this brought up to me at work uh, just this week, uh, Acts uh, Acts 18.18, where Paul... um, Put himself keep, under a vow. keeping some kind of vow. How would you... It was a Jewish vow. He yeah. did more than that. He went through a rite of purification. He did everything he could to convince the Jews in Jerusalem that he was a Jew. And he was practicing things he normally would not practice. And his hope... Remember when he said, I become all things to all people that I might win some up to the Jews. I become as a Jew. It's interesting that Jewish Paul says to the Jews that became as a Jew, when he's really Jewish. Okay, so he did things that Christians normally wouldn't do to convince the Christian Jews in Jerusalem to accept him and his gospel and the love gift that he had from the churches in Macedonia and Asia Minor. 
And everything that Paul did was to forestall what actually happened. The riot that began in Jerusalem when Paul got there in Acts 21 was started by Christians. No matter what Paul did, they, would, they thought he was anti-Moses, and they started a riot, and he ended up arrested. And there's nothing said about that gift that was written about in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, in Acts he came with this money from the Gentiles, hoping that there'd be one new man, Ephesians 2, and the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Remember in Galatians, men from James came down and started a problem in the churches in Asia Minor. And so far from being normative, this was extraordinary, and it didn't do any good, Okay. Jesus forbade religious vows. We want to take that seriously. Let me just give you an example. This is one that I quoted, and I was asked about this on radio interviews that I did. Here's a vow. I'll just quote the whole thing. In uh, April 17, 2005, Rick Warren filled the Angels Stadium with 30,000 people. And this was when he was launching his peace plan. It was going to solve the world's problems. See, these vows in America are always about solving the society's problems, self-betterment, being better, whatever. You take vows of self-improvement or whatever. Okay, this 2005, 30,000 people, here's the vow that they all took. Quote, today I'm stepping across the line. I'm tired of waffling. I'm finished with wavering. I've made my choice. The verdict is in, and my decision is irrevocable. Hold on a second. Right there is sin, according to the book of James. Remember the businessmen said, we're going to go here and there, we're going to make a profit? It says, you don't know that. You're making an irrevocable decision to serve the peace plan that you're not even sure is from God? Now you're in bondage. Okay, irrevocable. Who are we to do that? That's presuming on God's providence. Continuing, I'm going God's way. There's no turning back now. I will live the rest of my life serving God's purposes with God's people on God's planet for God's glory. I will use my life to celebrate his presence, cultivate his character, participate in his family, demonstrate his love, communicate his word. Since my past has been forgiven, I have a purpose for living in a home awaiting in heaven. I refuse to waste any more time or energy on shallow living, petty thinking, trivial talking, thoughtless doing, useless regretting, hurtful resenting, faithless worrying. Instead, I will magnify God, grow to maturity, serve in ministry, fulfill my ministry, my mission in the family of God. Because this life is preparation for the next, I will value worship over wealth, we over me, character over comfort, service over status, people over possessions, position and pleasures. I know what matters most. I'll give it all I've got. I'll do the best I can with what I have for Jesus Christ today. I won't be captivated by culture, manipulated by critics, motivated by praise, frustrated by problems. Interesting debilitated by temptation, intimidated by the devil. I'll keep running my race with eyes on the goal, on my goal, not sidelines or those running by me. When times get tough, 
Well, this goes on and on. There's three more paragraphs. I'll be gracious to everyone, grateful for every day. I will not backslide. And I swear by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, frankly. (laughs) You know, here's the question. Here's the question. I was on a radio interview, and this guy read this whole thing. He says, what could possibly be wrong with that? And I said, because Jesus forbade taking oaths. And if you take this oath, you'll be a covenant breaker by next week, if not sooner. And then you fall under judgment. Then you fall under the condemnation of the devil. 30,000 people, everybody stands, it's all exciting, and you take an oath. But it's interesting, that was 2005, I was out there in 2008, and they had their peace plan summit. Have you heard about the peace plan? It pretty well fizzled out. Remember another one, the prayer of Jabez? They were going to save an African nation. Take the mic around. Well, you know, there's several examples from history about taking oaths and bad things that resulted from it. In the Third Reich, when you went into the German military, you were required to take a personal oath of loyalty directly to Adolf Hitler. Okay. Um, I got an email from James Sundquist, and he said the latest church growth book now has you take an oath at the end of every chapter. And in the case of Purpose Driven, you had 101, 201, 301, 401. Each one required an oath, including an oath to tithe. Yes. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. What, you know, how about that whole thing as kids? Well, that's nothing compared to this. I wouldn't say you can't pledge allegiance. To the flag, though? Well, if, you, if it offends you, don't do it. Who else here? Back here. Oh, you know, I Jerry. took an oath uh, when I got married. Okay. And so that's... I deal with that in the 43 years coming up. So uh, I don't know what uh, that is meant by that. I'm not trying to be silly, but I mean, I mean, it is something that we do take an oath when we're getting yeah, married. Yeah, when we get married and generally when we testify in a court of law. I, have, I wrote about that in my book. Marriage is a valid covenant between, see, an oath and a covenant are the same thing, and I proved that from the Old Testament. Okay? Marriage is a valid covenant between two people before God. Okay? You can take an oath. It's a valid covenant. You're not presuming on God other than that he's going to keep you together. And I don't think that's presumptuous. And I'd say another thing is to swear in a court of law. The greater good you are supposed to submit to civil authorities. I think that thing you just read, the appeal of it and the way it hooks people is that all those points... Or maybe, you know, just about at least 90% of those points are all in Scripture. So it just uh, takes our attention off God is what you're saying. Okay. The, oath, the only valid oath is the oath to God. And something we should we have to be reminded of every week or every day or every minute. Okay. That's why we're all here in this room every week. Because we have to be reminded every week. It's not something you can do on your own power. Well, let's go back to the text itself and try to see if we can understand what Jesus and James were saying, and then we'll talk some more about this. 
above all, my brethren. Now, if you look at the context in, in James, in James 5, it's about misuse of the tongue. Remember, the tongue is, sets on fire a whole world. And there's also this thing about the businessmen, are we going to do all these things? And it said, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. See, we need to be more circumspect. And uh, let me read the context of Matthew so we can discuss this more forthrightly. You can turn to it, Matthew 5.33. See, what we don't want to do is take the teaching of Jesus and say, well, we don't need to listen to that. It doesn't mean anything. Who's the head of the church? Christ. Why do we take his word so lightly that we don't even care about it? And do so in the name of being pious. That's a serious problem. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. His teachings are binding. I suppose someone could devise a marriage ceremony where they just made their yes, yes, if that bothered their conscience. Matthew 5.33, again, I, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city, is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil, literally of the evil one, that is of the devil. Who inspires religious souls? Satan. Shock! (laughs) Satan would inspire a religious oath? Look at all the monastic vows that have been taken in church history to swearing to things. Let's say someone like Luther takes an oath of chastity, which means you shall never be married. What's wrong with doing that? Well, number one, they had this false idea that marriage was a lesser thing and that really good Christians shall never be married. That's not biblical. Forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons. Number two, it's presuming on a future will of God that's not yet known. Okay, so you take an oath of chastity. How do you know the Lord isn't going to bring along a spouse? You don't know the future. That's James as well. You're you're swearing about an unknown future. Number three, you're thinking that you're making yourself more pleasing to God by doing works of supererogation. means above and beyond what's required of ordinary Christians. Now... Eric, I, I promised you I was going to call on you. Why don't you discuss the promise keepers? It's one of our more recent examples of this. Yeah, you, you and I have talked about the promise keepers numerous times, and I think hit the nail on the head when you've talked about the presumption on God's providence. Providentially, when we're taking oaths, the problem is we don't know what God has taken in the future for us. And what's interesting is here you have the promise keepers taking oaths to things that they're not bound to in Scripture. And so, for instance, um, now some of them they are, but on certain things, like, for instance, this peace plan, where has God said in the Scriptures that we have to be about some ill-conceived peace plan? The peace plan that God has come up with is the plan where Jesus Christ comes 
And according to Isaiah the chapter 2, right, the swords are beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. And so ironically, when they're taking oaths regarding the peace plan, here they're attempting to do what God alone will do. And so what you pointed out is it's really just a form of a works-based salvation. Yeah, let's look at God's that race. even at a more fundamental level. Okay, who keeps promises? God? If God gives a promise in Scripture, can we count on him to keep it? Amen. If I make a promise, I may keep it, I may not. I would like to. But this says what it says. We don't allow the Scripture to weigh heavily on us. We slough off Jesus like he had nothing to say to us. Well, who cares about that? If you, when you look at these religious vows, whether it's from the promise keepers or from Rick Warren or for some other one, there's a new one out now, they never even address this passage. I would say it's becoming upon the ones who are doing this teaching to prove that what Jesus says doesn't apply if we're going to give any kind of credence to sola scriptura. Why does this not apply? Why can we ignore this? Yes. I want to address the marriage issue that the gentleman brought up. Yeah. God allowed there to be marriage. If you go back into uh, uh, ancient uh, Jewish custom, and even today where Hasidic Jews, real conservative Jews, ha- are, are being married, you won't hear the words that I promise to love, honor, cherish, obey till death. You, you don't hear those words. So I don't want to say that because of this, I mean, obviously the, the, the Jewish people aren't looking at the New Testament, but the idea that God had came from the Old Testament mm. for his idea of marriage. They read out of the Torah, and, and, and it, you, the, it's such a long process of marriage and the courtship and so on and so forth that by the time you get to the actual ceremony, you're married. <laughs> it's, it's a done deal. Okay. You don't have to go through all that. Marriage is a valid covenant. Right, so the I promise to do this, I promise... That, that's all man I, I'm not. Up. I'm not criticizing... Marriage vows. I want you to know that I mentioned that in my book. But Rick Warren is not anybody's wife. The, the peace plan is not God's plan. Okay? Now, the promise keepers were promising to be better husbands and better fathers. I would agree with the goal of being a better husband and a better father. This is a salient. This is a watershed. It takes you one place or it takes you another. The oath-taking, according to Jesus and according to James, I haven't read all of James, leads you under the condemnation of the devil. Because when you have a failure, now you are a covenant breaker. And all of the... Uh, threats and warnings to covenant breakers come right down on your head. Luther talked about that. Now, if you let your yes be yes and your no be no, if I am to say, I do want to be a better husband, 
And I trust by God's grace to take steps that that would be the case. If I do want to be a better father, that God would give me grace to do that based on his grace and his promise, that's a good thing. But see, the soccer stadium or the baseball stadium or the auditorium full of people creates a group dynamic. And people sign a card, make a pledge, walk down an aisle, raise their hand. Now, this goes all the way back to the 19th century. And Finney was really the inventor of this. But Michael has something he wants to say back here. I've been listening to Les Feldick for a few years. I no longer do. But he would say that James doesn't even apply to the church today because it's just to, just to the Jews. And neither would Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so he's not even for the Great Commission. I mean, I, you know, I kind of I call him to repentance for this. But he, he would say James isn't even for us today. No, we can. I uh, know. See, that's what disturbs me the most is not taking seriously Christ and his apostles. The religious traditions are more important to us than Christ and his apostles. Now, there are a lot of people that are convinced in their own mind that they're very pious who absolutely refuse to submit to Christ and his apostles. They will not do so. They'll submit to church tradition. They'll submit to creeds and councils. They won't submit to Christ. Now, that's where Luther comes in with the authority of Scripture in the priesthood of every believer. A covenant is an oath. When two people are married, they enter into a covenant relationship. Therefore, whether they do or don't take an oath, it's the same thing. It's a covenant before God. I would affirm that. To take an oath and not keep it is to profane the name of the Lord. That's what is taught in the Old Testament. So when we take an oath, what are we thinking is going to happen? Let's say I go to the football field or the baseball field, and I get all excited. I think Promise Keepers was started by a football coach, and you get everybody charged up. And it's undoubtedly true that men are not being good husbands and good fathers, and they're being irresponsible. So his solution was the Promise Keepers, but it was the men keep making the promises, not God. Okay, and at the time I was a pastor down in a bad part of town and there was an awful lot of men on the streets that didn't care about their families and so on. Um, if I thought taking oaths would fix that, but it won't. And it says, why, do you, why does it say that you may not fall under judgment? Why does it say that? Why did Jesus say anything beyond these is of the devil? Why does it say that? Because covenant breakers come under the curse of God. So I go to the Angel Stadium. I join 30,000 people. And I swear an oath that I'll never be frustrated by problems. That was in there. That was in there. I told that radio interviewer, Almost everybody would be a covenant breaker, probably in the parking jam trying to get out of the stadium. <laughs> now you're a covenant breaker, and you fall under the devil. Now, do you, do you think I'm taking Jesus 
uh, what in James any other way than what they said and what they intended? I don't think so. Uh, back to Eric again. You know, Bob, this is a wonderful way to tie into the means of grace because that's the point of the means of grace is they focus on the promises of God rather than the promises we make. And I was thinking of the passage in 2 Timothy 2.13 where Paul writes, he says, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He just took Jim's verse on the, his last Sunday here. Oh. Is that, <laughs> but you oh, didn't know that. Continue on. Oh, okay. Well, I apologize. Um, but the, the, the point being is, of course, you and I are going to be breakers of promises. That's the way it is. But God never is. Yeah, when we're faithless, he remains faithful. Here's right. my point. The apostles' teaching is a means of grace because remember when we had that chart that explained means of grace? Is there a command? Yes or no. Is there a promise? Yes or no. Is it accessible? So when God commands something that we would gather together and break bread and encourage one another in the faith, and there's a promise that he'll be there to meet us, and it's accessible, it's something we can come and do, then we're relying on God. Here's the issue. If you don't get anything else out of this, here's the issue. Are we relying on God as the promise keeper or ourselves? And if we rely on ourselves, we'll fail, and then we'll come under the condemnation of the devil. Yes. Yeah, this is central to the gospel. This is amazing because the evangelical church, I don't think, understands that when they say, well, you got to make your, do your part or, or have an emotional experience to accept Jesus Christ. And the, the true way is, is, of course, the Lord bringing you to repentance. So this is right down center to the gospel. Yeah. See, we, we mistake American ethos for Scripture. Sometimes you want to study the history of 19th century Christianity and post-millennialism that reigned supreme. This is where the roots of these things came. Finney, the, the bandwagon, literally, there was a preacher on a, on a wagon that would be promoting whatever movement, and people would jump on to join taking oaths, making pledges. There were thousands of societies in America in the 19th century to stomp out just about any problem you can think of. And Finney claimed that if we worked harder, the millennium would come in America within our lifetime. Okay, so we're going to have a millennium in America without Jesus, according to Charles Finney. And then this book, Seasons of Refreshing, Refreshing by Hardman, which is, I think, a very even-handed I think the last chapter is about Billy Graham. Graham, modern revival movements, and it shows pictures of stadiums. Billy Graham was kind of the pinnacle of the American mass revival idea. And I'm not saying nobody was ever saved at Billy Graham crusade, but he'd fill a stadium. And, you know, did any of you ever participate? I did. I I went. And they'd fill a stadium, and then they had counselors that would sort of head down there so people didn't feel too awkward about getting up out of their seat and going down and and, uh, walking the path. 
And so uh, when Rick Warren requires religious oaths to join his church, I said requiring an act of sin to join a church. Why is that not a problem? I think we lost touch with what Luther went through. He paid the amazing thing is that he wasn't killed. But Luther got away from special religious vows through the gospel. Is the gospel what we're going to do or what God promises to do? No, it still has its own versions. I get, I get emails from Todd Bentley. Okay. And, you know, I want to say this, because I met with that couple that got out of one of these groups, like Bentley's. It isn't that there's no gospel. Every once in a while, I get an email from Bentley, and he has the gospel, and he has it right. But then there's all this other stuff added to it, sort of like Colossians issue. The same with IHOP down in Kansas City. They, they do have the gospel, but then it's everything else that causes the trouble. Now here from Bentley is the watering tree. It kind of looks like Rick Warren's tree on his book. And it's about getting a CD where you soak in the presence of God. It says here, the watering tree is an atmospheric journey designed to achieve intimacy with God. Okay, so you listen to a CD of some sort of music, and you achieve intimacy with God. Now, didn't Jesus say, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me? The soundscapes accompanied with the compassionate prophetic prayers of Todd Bentley uplift and build the spirit, and so you come to intimacy with God. Well, there it is. You think about this. Think about Jesus. Think about James. Think about the context. Now, in the Old Testament, they were supposed to keep their vows, which is true. But here's a passage, Deuteronomy 23, 22, if you want to jot it down, out of the Old Testament. However, Deuteronomy 23, 22, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. In other words, if you do vow, keep your vows or you come under a curse. But if you didn't vow at all, that wouldn't be a sin. Deuteronomy 23, 22. Now, it's an interesting study to take some time how this became the ethos of American evangelicalism to, is to fill a stadium and to get people to make decisions. But I don't know, you know if anybody went to Promise Keepers and came home and was a better husband, I can rejoice that some wife had a better husband. But the overall message of taking O's in the presence of thousands of people is not the same as believing the promises of God. I believe that God could take a self-centered sinner, forgive his sins, give him the joy of the Holy Spirit, and make him the kind of husband some wife would like to be around. Do you think that's possible? Would you, husbands, would you like that? <laughs> some wife would like to be around. <laughs> well, there's no law. What did Paul say? The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's been my verse to uh, remember in the last month or two. 
And I think people will be happy to be around somebody filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Against such, there's no law. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that is of the evil one. All right, now we go to grace that is the result of means of grace. This one I, I'm excited about. I'm excited about all of these. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 say the same thing. They're quoting a certain proverb, I believe. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, let's go back a little bit. If I swear I'm going to do this, 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 and this, isn't that pride? Don't I think I'm going to be a better than somebody else because I made some grand proclamation that I will be? But what if I just swear God gives grace to the humble? God has grace for wives and grace for children and grace for husbands who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, who realize that if God wasn't kind and merciful to us, we'd be as bad as any sinner that we've ever known, that we'd be blaspheming, angry, all kinds of things that we wouldn't want it to be true. Proverbs 3.34 is the basis for this. God gives grace. This is James 4 and verse 6. We were in James just a bit ago. Now, God gives grace to the humble. Here's another reason why God's the promise keeper and we believe his promises, because therefore we humble ourselves under his mighty hand and God has grace for us. Eric, we were talking about this one. Maybe, do you have the mic? You want to give it to Eric? Look up Deuteronomy 8.2 and then read that. You may all want to turn to this one. And it gives a, a little bit of a background about what means of grace is all about. This is from the Old Testament. I'm excited about these passages here. Yeah, I know. And I think God can have mercy on us and help us. And if the result will be a good one, mm. pleasing to him. All he right. gives greater grace, grace that's greater than all of our sin. Amen. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2. Deuteronomy 8, 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. And here's the purpose statement, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the wilderness wanderings were designed to humble them so that we, now God already knows all things, but we need to find out if we're going to keep his commandments or not. Tested as under, in the fire. Deuteronomy 8.16 says this, the same chapter. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. God does the testing. God gives grace to the humble. He humbles us by us depending on his provisions. Now, if you imagine the wilderness wanderers, the manna was showed up every day except for Sabbath. Is that correct? 
but they had a double portion the day before. Now, day by day by day, if they were going to be survivors in the wilderness, they needed God to send the manna. Is that correct? They complained about it. They grumbled about it. They started claiming they were better off in Egypt. At least in Egypt, they have brats. Oh, there's no. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. But according to Deuteronomy, God humbles us so that we know we must depend on him. Is that not what it says? To do good for you in the end. Somebody here, I got a one for somebody to look up. Rich, you look eager. Zephaniah three twelve. Thankfully, there's indexes in the Bible. <laughs> Zephaniah three twelve. Hey, yeah, it is. It's in the Old Testament, Rich. I found it. Cool. Zephaniah three twelve. All right, Zephaniah three twelve. Sweet, yes. I got it. I got lucky. I will leave you in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. A meek and humble people. Wow. Mine says, I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. You know, I think it all comes down to one thing. I am God. I'm the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give to another. In other words, it's my power, not yours. Right. Really, doesn't that what it all comes down to? Isn't is that... humility trusting in the promise of God? Yeah. Rather than our own supposed ability? I think so. How do we humble ourselves? By, be- <laughs> by believing the promises? It says in Matthew twenty three twelve. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. A good example would be the Apostle Paul's in his own conversion. And his uh, description of his conversion in Philippians chapter 3. Didn't Paul in Philippians 3 say that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees? Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. Concerning righteousness in the law, blameless. Blameless. Now, it doesn't mean he was sinless, but it means amongst the Pharisees, nobody would lay any blame on Paul. He was as good as anybody could be. But what did Paul say about all those things? I count them but rubbish. I count them but rubbish that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but a righteous which is by faith, that by all means I might obtain to the resurrection from the dead. I do one thing, forgetting what lies behind, I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was laying aside his own righteousness and clinging to Christ alone. Mr. Michael Quinn, you want to bring him the mic? Hold on a sec. Go ahead and say it into the mic. I said after his conversion in Romans 7, he just cried out to God, Oh, 
wretched man yeah. that I am, who will deliver me? Before yeah. his conversion, he was righteous. That's true. You know, it's so hard for us, especially in an unconverted state, obviously, to think we can't do it ourselves. You know, when uh, during those months between March and July, when I came, became a theist who did not believe in evolution, and in July when I became converted, I was fighting against Diane and her family and their version of Christianity, which was Pentecostal. And I had nothing to do with the church for a long time because I'd grown up in liberalism. And all of a sudden, I started drawing on my Sunday school as a, a, a lost man. Well, I remembered a Bible. I know more Bible than you because Diane didn't, didn't really go to church before she was converted. And I started talking about me. But I was full of anger, bitterness, hatred, blaspheming God until he converted me, until the very day he converted me. Think about this, please. If you're an angry person, do you think taking a vow will solve that problem? How do we get rid of that? God gives grace to the humble. And I could certainly go to God and say, Lord, this, what's in my heart, I know it's not pleasing to you. It could be a lot of things, resentment over whatever. And you did say the, king, say the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Where is it? Where's the joy? Where's your joy in my life? It should be there. And we can humble ourselves before God and God gives grace to the humble and the Holy Spirit gives joy to us then it says in 1 Peter 5 5 you younger men likewise be subject to your elders yes uh, the young men think they know everything I did they won't listen to anybody and it says, and all of you, okay, the young men should submit to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thomas Schreiner says this, the younger in particular then should submit to the elder leadership of the elders. We have seen elsewhere that Peter understood submission as the responsibility of believers to those in positions of authority. The purpose is not to encourage Obedience, no matter what the leaders might say. For if leaders give counsel that contravenes God's moral standards or violates the gospel, then they should not be followed, says Schreiner. Nor is the verse suggesting that leaders are exempt from an accountability before the congregation. We have already observed that elders are admonished not to use their authority as dictatorial rulers, but to serve others under their charge. Conversely, those who are under leadership should be inclined to follow and submit to their leaders. They should be not be resisting the initiatives of leaders and p- complaining about the direction of the church. So, dear ones, we need to humble ourselves and find grace. Romans 5.20 says, But the law came in so that the transgression would increase, 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then in Proverbs 16, 18, and 19, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. I believe with all my heart that if I humble myself before the mighty hand of God, I'll find grace. And when I hear about what God's done for me, a sinner, and what his mighty promises are and how gracious he is through the gospel, if I'm not humbled, something is seriously wrong. Does that make sense? The gospel should humble us that God would do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and send his son Jesus, the sinless one who's head over all, the creator of the universe, to live a sinless life and be perfectly righteous and to die a torturous death on the cross and be raised on the third day and to bodily appear to many people and to bodily ascend into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for us That's the gospel. The good news is that if we repent and believe, we'll be saved. That ought to humble us. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. It's really hard when God's opposing you. Remember Paul? It's hard for you to kick against the the pricks or the ox goat on on the road. I mean where he was converted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you to give us the opportunity to humble ourselves and to trust in the gospel. And we pray that you would help us live lives that would honor you and please you, that we might care for one another and be the kind of people that you want us to be in whatever realm of life you've put us. May our hearts be full of righteousness, peace, and joy. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.